0: We are in our second week of studying the book of Job. I want to just remind you of a few things about this book. Um, There's a storyline that helps us to understand the trajectory of the story here. Uh, God says to Satan, Job loves me for me. Satan says to God, Job loves you for what you do for him. God says to Satan, "Job loves me for my face, not my hand. He loves me for who I am. He loves me not for what I can, just what I can give him." Satan says, "Well, if that's true, then take away everything he has, and he will not love you anymore, and he will curse you to your face." Now, we looked at this week. If you read through your your devotionals, we looked at chapters 1 through 5. And for those of you who tend to say when things are going bad, it could have been worse. It only gets worse. Because Satan says, okay, you took away his family. You took away his possessions. But if you cause him physical pain, chronic physical pain then he will curse you and so God allows that Satan would give such pain to Job and uh, we're talking about this book and 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 what happens and we're trying to get you to frame it a little bit differently is that a lot of times people go to the book of Job when they are suffering to try to understand suffering Job does not really give you a satisfactory answer for why you suffer. Because Job's not really about why you suffer. It's really about why are you righteous. It's really about what is your motive for righteousness. Why are you holy? Why do you decide and choose to live a holy life? It's about the motivation for holiness. And there are many people who look and say, well, let me learn from Job how to respond in in suffering. And and there is a a sense for many people that the book is is about Job since it's named Job. But the truth is the, the one on trial is God. Satan has put God on trial. He's saying, God, no one loves you for you. They only love you. For what you do for them. And so we come to this next section of Job, and we're going to focus in on two conversations. One, friends show up. And uh, we're going to focus on one of the friends who first speaks to Job, because in it you're going to see um, how not to be a friend. And then we're going to look at Job's response to his, to his friend. Okay? So here's a snippet of their conversation. It's in the front of your bulletin. We're going to read this together and then we're going to glean together what God has to say to us in the midst of the trials of our lives. Job uh, chapter 5 and Job chapter 6. I like it when you read out loud with me, but today I thought we'd pick someone to be Job's. No, I'm kidding. We'll all be Job's friend for a minute here, all right? So let's read this together. This is Eliphaz speaking to Job. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but certainly I cursed his dwelling, his children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns. And the thirsty pant after his wealth, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that He would let loose His hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing. For I have not denied the words of the Holy One. I understand and, and I want you to understand. This, these are heavy chapters. But here's, if you'll listen to me. This is the invitation of God. For you to have the weight of His glory in, it, in your life. For you not just to be a superficial, double-minded, tossed to and fro Christian but to you for you to be someone who not only is solid in your own life but who leaves a legacy for generations to come this is not a day this is not a day for mercenary christians it's not a day for consumer christians it is a day for servants of the most high god who know how to walk in the spirit in the name of jesus in the authority of jesus who freely have received so that they freely can give. Job's in this being in the the canon of the Bible is not an accident. Part of the reason is this, you don't have to live long to realize everyone suffers. Loss loss of what matters to you is inevitable. It's in all our literature, it's in our plays, it's in our our movies, it's in our songs. Loss is an inevitable thing. But what we're looking at today that's a little different than what we looked at last week. In some ways, we, we looked at the question, you know, why are the righteous righteous when they suffer? But this week, we're looking more at the question, how do I bear up under suffering? How do I endure losses that matter to me? How? Well, the Bible's really, really clear on this. Even though we have a terrible example in the book of Job, it's still clear on this, that a source of comfort and strength is your friends and your family. That the reason we have church is not because, you know, the gospel cannot exist without organized people. We have church because we are to be a source of comfort and strength to one another. He puts the, the, he puts the fatherless in family. You know, when Jesus uh, is being portrayed by John as the Word of God, he, he says it this way that Jesus came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received them, he gave them a philosophy, he gave them a morality. He gave them a political party. He gave them a fraternal or sorority or something. No, it says he gave them the right to be called children of God. It's not business transaction. It's family. (laughs) And just as when you were born, when you are born again, you don't get to pick your family. So sometimes... Those who should be our source of comfort and strength are the source of our greatest pain. And sometimes it's because we have greater expectations of family than we do anybody else. But these friends of Job, I mean, it, it is bad enough he's lost everything that mattered. It's bad enough that he lives in chronic pain, that, that on top of his emotional distress, now he has physical distress. I mean, it's so clear. Any of you that ever have been in truly emotional distress and physical distress, his description of not being able to taste his food will make sense to you. That that which used to give him comfort no longer even satisfies his palate. It's so bad. But then his friends show up. And one of the things that, that this passage helps us to understand, I'm going I'm to look at it with you in three ways. One is... Bad counsel is miserable, as a matter of fact, Job calls his counselors he calls them in chapter sixteen miserable comforters <laughs> now immediately i maybe it's just my brain, but I immediately think of this down comforter that I have you know and you know if you have a good down comforter on a cold night, there's just nothing like it. I mean it is wonderful, but we have one where the feathers have migrated. <laughs> Not really sure where they went. But I can tell in the middle of the night that I have now a patch of the comforter where there are no more down feathers, you know. There's no more down in that place because I wake up with frostbite in my toes, you know. And I'm like, miserable comforter. <laughs> and that's what Job's calling his friend. But when you have miserable comforters, then you have to know how to counsel yourself. Even more than that, in some ways, you always have to be able to counsel yourself. You know, the psalmist is saying to himself, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's telling his soul to bless the Lord. He's counseling himself. And all that is within me, bless his holy name, he's counseling himself. But ultimately, you will not be able to truly endure the loss of things that matter to you unless you have an ultimate counselor. And Job is a type of Christ. He points us to Jesus. And Jesus has said, I will send you a comforter like no other. So let's look at these bad counselors first. So here's Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the leader of the pack. And Eliphaz thinks he's the most knowledgeable. He's the best communicator. And please understand this. Eliphaz's motive is to help Job. He doesn't do it. But his motive, if you went at him and said, is your motive to destroy Job? No, my motive is to help Job. So, I love it when people do the worst things and say, but I have a good heart. I'm like, you are totally lying to yourself in so many ways, because In some ways, you cannot be a good counselor unless you are self-aware. I I stop people right away if they say to me, do as I say, but not as I do. Then I don't want to do what you say or do what you do. But this is Eliphaz, and, and his arrogance and his pride blinds him. So here's what he does. The first thing he says is, Job, stop your praying you're so out of touch with God, and you're so unworthy, and you're so worthless, God's not going to answer you, so stop praying. That's his words that we just read. God's not going to comfort you. God's punishing you. And here's how, he, here's how he, he lines this up. He says, you're a fool. Now, fool in the Old Testament doesn't mean that you're silly or that you're comical Fool in the Old Testament means you are disobedient and you are rebellious and you're worthy of nothing but death. Wouldn't you love having your friends say that to you? So he comes to Job in friendship and says, you're a fool, you're disobedient, you're rebellious. So everything he says at this point has no empathy to it whatsoever. It's unsympathetic and cold. And the reason is this, is that Eliphaz sees the world that way. He sees the world as mere law and consequence, law and punishment. He says, there is no way if you were innocent that this would have happened to you. He says, do any kind of wheat or oats or anything spring to the ground unless seed is planted? Therefore, this destruction, you have sown it. Wow, thank you, Eliphaz. But let me tell you, a lot of Christians believe just like Eliphaz. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't get sick. Better check. God's not listening to you because there's sin in your life. It's easy to be Eliphaz. It's easy to be Eliphaz. And Eliphaz thinks he's doing Job a favor. He says basically to Job in this speech, he says, figure out what you did wrong. Make amends for it and get on with it. (laughs) Sometimes we do this kind of thing with each other. (laughs) Sometimes with my wife, I just want to go, okay, I listen, now get over it. Uh (laughs) Yeah. I'm saying it out loud. It's on tape. I have done that. You know, there are times some of us have said stuff like man up, buck up, get over it. You've grieved it long enough. You guys are really quiet except for Alan today. (laughs) Are you hearing me? (laughs) If you'll listen to me today, I can save you thousands in therapy. And save your friends thousand in therapy as well. Notice, I mean, one of the famous statements is when someone's a bad counselor, they're a Job's friend. This is a famous, th- these, this advice and this counsel is so famous that when somebody is a bad friend to you in your trial, they're known as a Job's friend. But See, he didn't think that. He thought he was being a friend. Because in his worldview, in his worldview, if you break the law, there are consequences. So if there are consequences, you must have broken the law. See, God messes with Eliphaz's world. If the world were simply a moral place, if that's all it was, then Eliphaz would be right and Job would be wrong. But the world isn't simply law and punishment. God has messed up this whole world with grace grace is a free radical in the world now please i mean listen to me if, if you want it all to make sense then it's law and punishment you do wrong you get wrong <laughs> one of my students before a test and i was teaching the hebrew language okay nobody was doing very well in the class so the, the student goes, Oh God, give us according to how much we have studied and how much we remember, and give us a and I stopped and I said, Nobody but you is praying that prayer right now. Everybody else is praying, Oh God, let the professor only ask what I already know. Give me supernatural revelation right now. Give me the gift of writing in tongues right now. See, he was he was praying an Eliphaz prayer. You only get what you deserve. I will tell you this. Most of us hate grace. Because grace means you're not in control. Grace means there's an unpredictable element in the world that you can't control. Because see, if I deserve love, then you can't take love away from me. If I deserve love, Good. If I deserve my house, if I deserve my marriage, if I deserve good children, if I deserve the money in the bank, then it's unfair for you to take it away from me. But if I got it because I didn't deserve it, it I don't have any control over it. And then Job's words come back. The Lord gives. And the Lord takes away. And only someone who loves grace says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Eliphaz hates grace. He thinks he deserves, and he thinks Job has gotten what he deserves. Are you tracking with me on this? But be careful. Christians, change one law for a whole new set of laws. Did you read your Bible enough? Did you worship long enough, hard enough? Did you witness? Did you go all the way through the Bible in a year? Or did you get stuck in Leviticus with names you couldn't pronounce? <laughs> See, most of us get, we, we exchange one law for a whole new set of laws because we're stuck believing that law and punishment is all there is. We become Christian Eliphazes. And we don't get grace. See, Job in the midst of his suffering, said, shall I receive from the Lord what is good only? Or can I not trust him and receive also what seems bad to me? Even though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Well, really what Eliphaz doesn't get is he doesn't get the complexity of the whole of both human nature and of God's grace. I'm going to give you three stories, two from, two from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament that illustrates what I mean. The story of Elijah is one of my favorites of all time. I mean, I, I relate to Elijah, and Elijah in so many ways. Elijah has this incredible power encounter with God. He defeats the prophets of Baal, the fire falls. And right after that, Elijah goes into an incredible depression. He hears that Queen Jezebel is after him, and he goes into this awful, terrible depression. He goes and hides. The mighty man of God goes and hides from the queen. So God, who loved Elijah for Elijah, sends an angel to comfort him. Now, if, if Eliphaz's view of things were right, then the angel would go and say, Elijah, buck up. Here's why you should get out of bed. Here's how you should do this. Let me, give you, let me give you a five-fold depression formula. But you know what? The angel who is truly sent by God to comfort Elijah and get him out of depression doesn't give Elijah a lecture. He says nothing. He cooks him a meal. Come on, that's, that's pretty awesome, okay? Okay. Because the angel knows a whole lot more than any counselor who's ever been a psychiatrist or a psychi- psychologist. And what does he do? He cooks him a meal. For me, it probably would have been chicken fried steak with gravy and uh, mashed potatoes. And I, I'm making you hungry. I better stop. You know, some comfort food. Something that means to you comfort. He cooks him a meal. You now, what? When he finishes eating, do you know what the angel does? Doesn't say anything else to him. says, go to bed. Go to bed. Go to sleep. There are some of you in here, when you get depressed, you go under the covers, you pull them up over, and you shame yourself and say, I'm weak. But the angel said, hey, one of the best things you can do is take a nap. Take a sleep. Come on. Some of you, that should set you free right now. Because <laughs> what, what do you do? You need that, but you're sitting there going, I'm weak. Oh, I should be up. Or some of you, you know what? If there had been a TV, he'd have given you Netflix at that point. And he'd say, binge watch. And he would have told you which show would have been the most fun. And you would go, can I watch six episodes? You can watch 12 if you want. You can finish the season. And then the angel does this. When the nap is finished, when, when the rest is, is done, and Elijah wakes up, he says, eat some more. This time, it's chicken soup. I'm sure it's Jewish penicillin at that point, you know? I mean, you understand, everything we tend to do is wrong. The angel of the Lord is more concerned about Elijah than what Elijah can do. See, in some ways, you know why I can love God for God? It's because he loves me for me, not what I can do for him. Sometimes it's better to have a walk and a nap than a lecture. Well, the second story, are you with me so far? The second story is Joseph. Joseph is one of the greatest figures of the Old Testament. He's one of the greatest men of all time. Joseph had... Pentecostal power and gifts before Pentecost he dreamed dreams he interpreted dreams he had direct access to the supernatural Do you know what it cost him because his gifting did not match his character because his character didn't give him the capacity for the gifting that he had it cost him everything He was he was rejected by his brothers he was left for dead they were going to kill him Instead, they sold him, took the money, he went to Egypt, he became a slave in the household, he rose in the household, then he was put in prison. Again, his life is just thrown into a course that nobody could expect. In prison, he's utterly disappointed and betrayed by the people he helps. And all of that was for one reason, so that he could be the second in command of Egypt. When his brothers came, and really the purpose was this. There was a famine in the land, and his brothers came and begged food because they were going to starve, and their father was going to starve. And they came before Joseph, and when it was revealed that he he was the brother that they wanted to kill, and the brother they had sold into slavery, Joseph said this, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You understand what he's saying? He said yes to God. And so his character and his capacity equaled his gifting, which led to his destiny. Second in all of the, f- of the greatest empire of that time. Saved his people. Again, a type of Christ. You cannot be, friends, a superficial Christian and have any kind of meaning or matter in this life. Now, long as you love Jesus and you believe and The Bible says you'll be in heaven. But is that all you want? Do you not want a legacy now? A legacy here? In John, there's a a man. He's born blind. The disciples are of the theological seminary of Eliphaz. They have a master's of divinity and stupid. (laughs) And they ask this question, who sinned? You see, and again, remember, you don't get a crop unless you have a seed. Who sinned? Is mother or father or him? And the the only one where sin really counts, the only righteous judge said this, no one, this was done that the glory of God might be revealed. Think about this for a minute. Job went through all that he went through. I mean, it probably would have multiplied in pain dealing with his friends. But his life has transformed millions. His suffering has made a difference in every generation. He is no little man. He will never be forgotten. Even when Jesus, until the time Jesus comes back, Job will be preached. Will your life? even to your own children or to your children's children, will your life be a legacy? The only way it is is if you lean into the suffering. Here's what Joseph said. I will not take the place of God. He had every right. He had all the authority to kill his brothers and to extract revenge. He had every reason to be offended with God. But he made this choice. I am not my own. I do not belong to me. I am not a mercenary with God. To God be the glory. There's something about, for many of us in here, there's something that happens when we realize there's something greater for us to live for than our comfort. We live in a society where everything that really matters is about your pleasure. I'd say reject that. Reject it. And begin to even begin to counsel yourself. Well, um, Job has to do his own counseling because his friends are no counselors. are miserable counselors. So I'm going to give you four things from Job's speech that help us to understand how to respond when we are counseling ourselves. I don't know where you do this. I do it in the shower. I do it in my car. Some of my epiphanies have come cutting grass Um, other things too, but uh, sometimes epiphanies. But it's the ability to emote, the ability to release, the ability to get in touch with what you're feeling and to be authentic and real about it. One of the things that you see in the speech of Job is he holds nothing back. He holds nothing back. He even says, look, the arrows of God are in me, and I know I'm speaking rashly. I know I'm just speaking out of my pain, he says. But in the end of the book, God says, Job, you did good. He said, Eliphaz and you boys, not so good. Now, now track with me on this, okay? So God says to Job, what do you want me to do with them? See, God knew the character of Job and that Job would intercede on their behalf. God will probably never ask that of you. Because you would say, oh, Lord, take thou thy holy hand grenade and smitest these," Causing them to snuff it, you know. So God probably won't ask us that question, but he knew Job's character. And he knew who Job was. And he could say, what do you want me to do? And Job prayed for his friends. That's character. You don't get there by hiding. You don't get there by being dishonest about your pain. And if you get the idea of grace, why be dishonest or hidden anyway? If if everything you have has been given to you because God loves you unconditionally, accepts you unconditionally, knows you from all the way to the bottom, and loves you all the way to the top, then why are you hiding? Especially from yourself. People come to me often. They'll go, I'm not angry. And I'm like, I have discernment. <laughs> I'm like, you don't need discernment. Your tone of voice. Or someone comes to me and says, uh, you know, pastor, I'm really not afraid. I'm like, then why are you shaking like a leaf? Why is everything you say couched with worry and anxiety? In other words, if you're falling apart, say it. If you're hurt, say it. Job said it. But here's the thing. Job never stopped praying. Job never stopped praying. See, sometimes people say, well, what about all these people out there who are cursing God, and saying God is incompetent, and God's not good, and he doesn't exist, and all that. How is that any different from the way Job is yelling at God? Here is the difference, and it makes all the difference. They're talking about God. Job is talking to God. God can handle it. The whole book of Job is about how God can handle how hurt you are. Guess what? None of the rest of us can. Your kids can't. Your spouse can't. And if you say they should be able to, then you're an Eliphaz. Because you're saying, you know, everything's law. Everything is law and punishment. And I'm the punisher. Man, there's only grace that matters. And in grace, you have the riches of Christ at his expense, not yours. So you can be honest. You can vomit your emotions. And God can handle it. And guess what? If you get it out. It doesn't stay there. The light tends to burn up the pain even. The light definitely dispels the darkness. In some ways, in the economy of God, you cannot be healed of that which you will not admit. Well, he rejects suicide. How do I know that? Because he asked God to kill him. Well, that's a little funny. I mean, it's a little... I mean, when you think about it, it's like, how do I know he... Because, see, I mean, if if you have something in front of you and you can do it yourself, you don't ask God to do it for you. So he had the means to open his veins. He had the means to end his life. But he never, ever succumbed to suicide as a means of comfort. He had... He had more reason than most, but he chose not to. Let me just tell you something. When you are thinking of suicide, it's not your thought. It's the spirit of death. And here's what it says. You'd be better off dead. The pain would end. Your family would be better off. Do you know what? I heard the spirit. I didn't realize that's what it was. in the, in the Back in 1988, I heard the spirit of suicide say to me, you have a high life insurance policy. You'd be worth much more to your family if you would just go ahead and kill yourself. And you know, when you're, when you're desperate and when you're hurting and the pain is so great, it feels like a comforting voice. Unmasked, it is an evil, evil spirit. Masquerading as light when it is truly dark. Are you hearing me? So you have to counsel yourself Others can say to you, don't, don't kill yourself. But your own soul has to rise up and say, suicide will not be a source of comfort to me. And I would say, bind that spirit. And especially when we have a time like this where we're just talking about this, often God, times God has brought someone into the room who has heard that voice and has entertained that. So before you leave today, would you come? And have someone pray with you and bind that voice and gag that voice to silence. It's not your voice. If, if you don't believe me, just think about any reaction you have. When you're threatened with death, you immediately try to save yourself. That's your true voice. You have a kind of salvation uh, sensitivity. So the suicide voice is not your voice. Now, the last thing I want to talk about with, with Job's self-counsel is the last words that we read. He says, I would even in pain, even in the pain unsparing, I would exalt you as long as I hold on to your word and am faithful to your word. Um, What Job is saying is that he will not multiply his pain with guilt. He will not multiply his pain, pain with shame. In other words, he knows that if he curses God, he will be guilty. He knows if if he leaves the path of righteousness and he begins to try to comfort himself with pain relievers that are illegitimate, he knows now he might have a distraction from his pain for a time, but now he'll come back, he'll still have the pain, and now he'll have guilt. See, we live in such a pleasure-oriented society And such an instant gratification society that we have not realized we were made for noble things. That in every man in this room, every woman in this room is a capacity to sacrifice. Is a capacity for righteousness. Is a capacity to be better than you even think you are. And there is something in that when you are living in your sweet spot with Jesus that you go... Even though He slay me, I will trust in Him. Come on, I know I'm getting exercised about it. But I'm so sick of the ignobleness of humanity. I'm so tired of selfish mothers and fathers. You thought I was going to say something else. I know your minds. a bit of a test to see how religious we are, too. (laughs) Aren't we tired of seeing people who only protect themselves? Who steal, who kill, who destroy, and they're doing it because in some way they think they deserve to do so? Isn't there something in us that says, even if I die for the cause for which I live, I have lived nobly? And my passions can't simply be entertainment. And my passions have to be something deeper and heavier. I don't know. Am I alone in this? One of my favorite writers is Tolkien. And I I do love the Lord of the Rings series, but it's, it's not close really. In many ways, it's not close to the books in terms of character development. And Tolkien knew how to create beings who were fallible, who were flawed, but also who could rise to nobility. And he created a world where temptation was real, but resisting temptation was also real. And there's a story in there where there's a man, you know, of course, his beings are men, elves, dwarfs, hobbits, you know, all this stuff. I know I'm a nerd, but uh, (laughs) I like all that stuff but there's a story where there's a a man who has the opportunity to take the ring and to have the power of the ring to restore his family's fortunes to protect himself and his family and he resisted and finding out that he has resisted the temptation the little hobbit I mean just the smallest most ordinary of creatures and, and the most ordinary of them all he's just a gardener that's all he is comes to this, this man and he gives him praise for having made the right choice, for being a faithful man. For He calls him a good man. And the man responds, and it's a phrase that we all sh- should get in some ways. He says this, The praise of the praiseworthy is above all other rewards. You see, that little hobbit was faithful to the end that little hobbit was a friend even when the friend didn't want a friend that little hobbit was willing to risk life and death for the sake of the world he was nobody he was a, a gardener he was nothing nothing really noble about his name nothing noble about his position but he was what all of us would really aspire to be a friend in need and a friend indeed and all of those things And so what the man said is because the praiseworthy one is praising me, that's my reward. Look, that's nothing compared to the praiseworthy Jesus praising you. This is what he promises. When all of this is over and you've lost stuff and you've sacrificed stuff and stuff has been taken away from you and you look into his eyes, the praiseworthy one is going to say, well done. For some of us, we get this. And we say, Lord, I can go through anything here as long as I hear those words. <laughs> I don't know why I get so emotional about this. The praiseworthy. One, praising you is worth everything you're going through. I mean, ultimately, and I'm not gonna flip to the slides, I always have five more slides than I have time. Ultimately, your comfort is Jesus. He's, he's the real Job, friends. Ultimately, your comfort is Jesus. You know, the cross proves Eliphaz wrong. On the cross, the innocent did suffer, but he suffered for those of us who are not innocent. The righteous one who sowed in tears and righteousness was crushed and bruised for our unrighteousness. Jesus made grace real. Jesus made grace available. I'm utterly convinced of this, and what's going on in your life, even what Satan is allowed to do in your life, is accomplishing the purposes of the goodness of God in your life. That God will only give in your life Satan enough rope to hang himself And He'll only allow Him to do what is God's purpose for bringing you to the place of Joseph or Job or the man who was born blind so that God's glory might be revealed. But in order for you to lean into that, for you to lean into that, is that you have to be willing to say yes to God even when you don't understand why. You have to say yes to God even though the purposes don't necessarily makes sense to you you bow that stiff neck of yours and you lower that proud head of yours and you open that voice of yours and you say yes Lord yes Lord my ultimate comfort is not here it's not even my own counsel it's not ultimately my friends though I love my friends my ultimate comfort I want to hear the praiseworthy say to me, Well done. Now, I'll give you just a picture and we'll, I, I hear the music, so I have to quit. I'll give you just a picture for a minute. No one understood Jesus. Righteous, upright. Holy, the very Word of God incarnate. And he had to, and I, I, I can see this in, in John. This is an awkward moment. He has to stand up before the religious leaders, stand up before his own disciples and his own followers who have seen him raise the dead, who have seen him heal the sick. And he has to say to them, do, you, do any of you have something to say against me? Can any of you find fault with my life? Can any of you find fault with my words? None of us in here would say that. Jesus could, though. Then he said this, since you won't witness of me, I witness of myself. And then he said this, and my Father witnesses. And if you can hear that moment, here's what you hear. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. See, you and I, we're total screw-ups. We're broken we're contaminated, we're corrupt. And Jesus says, come into my embrace. Let me conform you. Let me transform you. But I need your yes. I don't want you to be a mercenary. I don't want you to be, you know, just in it when it's good for you and convenient to you. I want you to become all that you can become. But I need your yes. He says, don't you hear my witness to myself? And don't you hear the witness of my Father? see you embrace him and everything he is becomes everything you have and you hear the words this is my beloved son this is my beloved daughter and I'm well pleased and I find that to be worth everything will you stand with me I know we're running out of time but I would you close your eyes with me and just hear my voice? Every time I've thought I had life figured out, a curve came. When uh, I was on a treadmill and I collapsed, and there was so much blockage in my my chest shortness of breath and, and you know, possibility of death and all of these things and then they cracked open my chest and they did quadruple bypass and it didn't make any sense to me I had been running with Jesus like never before and when I came out I felt such weakness and such frailty and my chest clicked from the surgery and scared the daylights out of me I knew how invincible and fragile I was for the first time. And and for the first time in 20 years, I experienced depression. And I got to say to you, I didn't ask why. Because I know he loves me. And I know even that is good. It wasn't what I expected. But I know there's something even in that which is unexpected that was good for me but at the same time I was wrestling with something truly emotional truly scary and I took it day by day and the depression has come back twice since it's mostly chemical it's not physical it's not emotional depression it's more a chemical imbalance that I get and I just hold on to him in the midst of it and I let him speak to me and it doesn't go away easily or quickly though I I experienced the healing this week that took the chemical origin of it away. I'm saying to you, it's time to say yes, even if you don't understand why or what is happening. To say yes, because he's purging something from you that's not good for you. That he's chipping away at what is, he's chipping away at what is constraining you and restraining you, so that you can run with God. The Bible says, "His grace is sufficient in my weakness." For in my weakness, His strength is perfected. When I am weak, then I am strong. Would you receive from me? I, so many of you here, you're so good to me. You trust me. Would you hear that the Lord is saying, will you bow that neck of yours that's been stubborn and stiff? Will you hold out your hands in humility? And will you say yes? Lord, I I drop my offense. I drop my bitterness. And I say yes to the sovereign Lord. I say yes to your goodness. I say yes. And here's what I know. Whatever you're going through, he already knows what the other side of it looks like. And it's a place you want to go. Lord, will you seal what you're doing now? Our yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have people, look, I think the Lord is all over what we're doing right now. We have people who will pray with you. If there's some specific things you're wrestling with, Today would be the day to pray with somebody and just share them and speak it out. Our prayer people will be right up here at the front. Thank you for being here today. We'll see you next week.